So before Frosty comes up, just a little intro, a little reminder um, on the screen for those listening to the podcast is um, Sinead O'Connor again, as always when I speak. Uh, she's my patron prophet. And we are in the phase of our series on the prophets where we are talking about some um, modern day prophets. So last week, Annika shared six poets with us and poetry and stand-up comedians and songwriters are very much the, the modern poets of our age, sorry, the modern prophets of our age, um, but podcast hosts can be as well. <laughs> Great segue, Rod. Um, yeah, so over the last um, year, two years, Frosty, with his uh, regular sidekick, Shane, have been, um, yeah, in a, in a prophetic work of uh, speaking out against some of the abuses that have come out in some of the church communities that they have been a part of or associated with or connected to over the years. Um, so as with the Hebrew prophets, it's not someone outside throwing stones, but it's someone from within a community calling that community to account. Um, so I will post a link to Frosty's podcast and um, to some specific, a specific episode that might be really helpful in the follow-up to today. But today we're going to just talk briefly about how that journey, prophetic journey started. And we're going to use the, the prophetic pattern that we started off with in this series. Um, so I'm going to ask Frosty about what kind of encounter with God or what kind of changing understanding of God shaped his prophetic work in this way. It all sounds very, <laughs> very serious, doesn't it, the prophetic work. Um, so following that prophetic pattern, we'll just, I'll just talk to him about the encounter with God, how that shaped the way he felt he needed to represent God to God's people, and what kind of message it was that he felt the church needed to hear, that what is it that the church needs to hear, leaders, how do they need to be confronted, and as we've said in the last few weeks, where's the hope, what is the vision of what the church might be instead of what it is? Um, and we'll finish today with me just asking him that question for our community, like what might we do and be as a community to, uh, to represent a different vision of the, what we call the kingdom with no G of God? Uh, so that's enough of an introduction. Do you want to come up, Frosty? So I've given Frosty the comfortable chair but the uncomfortable microphone, so it's a bit of a trade-off. But yeah, a round of applause, that's a good idea. Hello. Does that work? How are the levels, everyone? Good levels. Okay, yeah, cool. Nice one. Do you want to give, give us a little 30-second bio? Oh. Who are you, for those that don't know you? What are you doing here? What the here? hell are you doing here? <laughs> um, all right, then. My name is Michael Frost. There's an Australian one of those, too. Very confusing. If you, um, when I'm, especially when I'm in a... Australia. 
Uh, yes, live in New Zealand. I'm in Auckland um, and um, have, a, have a partner, Hannah, uh, a four-year-old Rufus, uh, who's very enthusiastic about everything. Um, yeah, I suppose in terms of like bio, I, I grew up in like sort of uh, various versions of Pentecostal, evangelical, charismatic, Hype Christianity, so I'm pretty pumped up, and um, and then went through a journey of sort of coming out of some forms of, of that alongside doing a theological journey. So I, so now I find myself, um, yeah, as I guess in, in some respects a, a theologian, um, uh, and I also co-lead uh, a small smallish church small church community. Um, which feels very kindred to this one in many respects, in Auckland, and um, and I do a bit of yeah, classic because I you know once I got to forty and I thought well I'm forty and I'm straight and I'm white and I'm a man I should start a podcast, <laughs> and uh, so it <laughs> seemed the inevitable next step of <laughs> life's progression. So that's what happened. Yeah, <laughs> sorry about that. Thanks, Rusty. Mm. Um, so as threatened, I'm just going to kind of go through some questions related to this prophetic pattern and, and Frosty can answer those questions however he likes. Um, but in relation to that first idea of, of an encounter with God, um, we were just interested, was there a moment in your life or a little process in your life where you felt you were encountering God in a way that transformed your sense of who God was, whose side God was on? Um, some kind of encounter or process that started you on this path. Yeah, talking about an encounter with God to like a someone who grew up a Pentecostal is always a, a, a weighted. It's a weighted term. Um, Got to get under the spout where the glory comes out, and you know um, other such <laughs> other such uh, wonderful phrases. Um, but I think yeah, it's, I, d I don't point to one particular and like radical moment of you know some bony fingered person pointing me out and saying I see you know I, I think for me there were kind of multiple kind of iterations of something like that that over time reoriented my view of God and the world and as you say like whose, si whose side God was on because God was always kind of on I was, I was always happy to be on the winning team and gather on a Sunday and sing lots of songs about how we're the sort of the winners, and um, isn't that great? And there was something very invigorating and uplifting about that, um, something very comforting, and something very disturbing about running into the idea that maybe that wasn't quite as much the case as I thought. I think when I was like in my early 20s, actually, while I was still a, a raging, like when I was a mega church, sort of, you know, at a swoopy fringe and everything, you know, I watched uh, Hillsong United music videos. Sorry for the reference, that, you know, but uh, tried to, you know, get the scissors out and cut my hair like Joel Houston. Wasn't blessed with the same sort of six foot five kind of handsome frame as Joel Houston, but tried to emulate it with the hair. Um, so, you know, like early in the mid twenties. But I remember I was reading the prophets actually because I was I tried to read my Bible um, as I should. And I bumped into Isaiah chapter 58, which is this passage about kind of the, the kind of fasting, the kind of true fasting God desires. 
and I was someone who would, at the time was trying to sort of go on 21 day fasts to um, get the unction to function, another Pentecostal phrase. Uh, and I, was trying to, I was trying to get more of God so that I could, you know, um, do things, magic things in the world. And um, I was never very successful at the fast. Might surprise, shocking, surprising. Um, but uh, I don't recommend drinking a lot of orange juice when you're not eating um, food for a week. It's it very acidic. Um, but but I bumped into Isaiah 58, and it was all about this, the kind of true fasting I have chosen, which is to to loosen the chains of injustice and untie the the yokes of oppression around people's necks, and to kind of remake. The, the city uh, into something that would be a place for the for those who had been um, oppressed and um, it really struck me at the time and it's interesting looking back now this, I'm I give long answers to questions is that right okay right just tell me to stop if you need to um, but at the time like I interpreted that within as as I guess is natural within the context that I was in and so I was like okay this is what kind of the the system I'm going to be a part of could be, and so I, I sort of stuck it up on my wall at work, and a bit weird, and um, uh, and in my room at home, and that kind of uh, became a mantra for me in, in some kind of way. But my assumption was that somehow the system I was a part of could be could be that kind of um, community, and I think um, so. I dove into it sort of with with full enthusiasm. And I think it was probably a process of years. And so the next layer of like encounter with God that I would describe is really encountering God in the stories of all the people who were being um, used up by the very system that I believed was going to be the thing that was going to transform the city. Uh, and, and so I started, I think, hearing God in the voices of people who I knew who were being kind of discarded because they had run out of their usefulness or because they'd run out of energy or because they... Uh, their life hadn't gone the way that it you know, should if you want to be a, a high-functioning member of, of a megachurch system. Uh, and as I, I think, for me, that became a place in which I started to sense um, God, I suppose. And, um, and God, in some ways, seemed to be present to me in those stories and experiences uh, much more than what started to sound like a lot of noise, you know, in, in the remainder of my life, but that had no sensitivity to these to these stories. Um, and so, I guess, yeah, there's like these multiple ways. And then doing theological study, I think, was for for me, even at that time, was like a, a bridge out also of going, oh, there are actually lots of ways to see God, not just the one I've been given. And there are lots of streams in the tradition and. Um, this is not all as tied down as I thought, and there's actually different voices within the theological tradition that I can listen to. And I remember just sitting in my first sort of few classes, just being like, "Hang on a second, why is no? Why have I never sort of? Why have I never heard that before?" Um, and and that was transforming for me as well. Even if where I was then is still a long ways from where I would be now. It's kind of the those kind of trigger points, if you like, that that. Kind of change the change the orientation or the direction you're going, you know. Yeah, so it's crazy that you can spend 20, 30 years in a church and not know what tradition that you're a part of. That was my experience as well. I I was in my mid 30s. Maybe it was theological college. Went, oh, I'm I'm reformed. <laughs> I had no idea that I followed Calvin. I'd, I had 
I don't think Calvin had really been mentioned at church, and yet I, I realized I'd been brought up a Calvinist. It's like, oh, how bizarre that I had no idea. Yeah. Yeah, there was a spec. I think in, in my form of spirituality, there was this idea that like there was the early church, then there was two thousand years of everybody getting it wrong, and then um, and then our kind of church came along, and we're restoring the the glory of the what the church should be, you know, and so yeah, we were just the way it sh- was supposed to be, yeah. not one particular expression that emerged out of certain social and cultural contexts that was trying to discover spirituality in a certain form. So it sounds like you. Like me, you start off with this sense of what God wants and what my church wants, mapping 100%, and then slowly those, the, the, the Venn diagram starts to split. And at, at what point, what was like the straw that broke the camel's back, or what was the point at which you thought, I actually need to speak into this, like the, the, the difference between how these churches are functioning and what I believe God wants is now so great to me that I actually need to speak into that. Yeah, I think, um, again, it kind of happened in two, two stages. So when I, was, when I first started my podcast, <laughs> oh, God, sounds a bit wanky, doesn't it? But anyway, um, when, I, when I did, I think what I, what, what I had come to was that I had lived a significant portion of my life, especially as I sensed these things like, like you were talking about, that used to 100% overlap, were like diverging. Um, I sp- had to spend a lot of my time sort of, sort of pretending to some people that I st- still saw them as 100% overlapping whilst getting increasingly uh, uncomfortable about the fact that I realized that at least from my perspective they, they definitely didn't. And so um, ending up with this kind of split version of myself in some sense. Um, so that was like one thing that I kind of looked, I, I just, yeah, I, I had this moment I think where I was looking at my life and thinking if I don't if I can't like say what I think now, um, I'm probably never going to be able to. And I don't want to live my whole life never being able to, you know, waiting for some magical day when those people will turn around and say, tell us what you really think. We want to do everything you say, you know. So um, I became, yeah, I bec- there was an authenticity call for me of like, I actually need to be able to say what I see um, and what I think and, and what I feel that is counter to maybe the stories that were being told or the, the, narr- the official lines and narratives. Um, and that I could see the ways in which not just the structures and institutions but the theological systems of certain forms of Christianity were like harming people and I, and I wanted to say something about that and at least offer like an alternative view. And then in particular last year, um, there was a, a bunch of stories that started coming out uh, about kind of abuse of power and, and, and harm that had been created in churches very much like the one that I had spent a significant portion of my life. Um, the church I was at was mentioned, as it was in the public sphere and journalism in, in New Zealand and in, and in Australia and you know, you, I'm sure some of you will be familiar with some of those stories of the kind of imploding um, mega churches or, or just the, the stories of, of, of harm and burnout and abuse that have come out of some spaces. And, um, and again, it was that kind of thing of, well, as someone who's like been in this space, and Shane and I had a conversation and we were both like, no one, no one else seems to be saying anything about this. Somebody's got to say something about this. And I guess, why should that not be us in some respects? And so we started having that conversation about what that could look like. 
Um, and I think in many respects that was like breaking a, a taboo in, in the church, certainly the kind of church I'd been a part of in the past, not anymore, but, um, but there is a, a kind of a, a cultural taboo amongst the church that we don't speak about anything that's bad about the church or about other churches or about all that kind of thing because that's kind of speaking against you know your your fellow brothers and sisters and so on in Christ and um, we've got to protect the reputation of the church to the world because otherwise they might think we're not great uh, and I think the decision to go actually that's harming people that system um, it's essentially silencing the ability to be able to name things that were um, abusive and harmful toward people. So it needed to change. Um, so we're going to talk for a little bit about um, maybe the content of that, like how you confronted <laughs> the leaders, what, um, how you felt like they'd led the, the church astray, how they were um, harming people, how they had not represented God. Should we listen to Jesus doing the same thing first? Yes. Yes, let's, let's do, do that. that. That was the correct answer. So Tams is <laughs> gonna read Tams is gonna read from Matthew twenty five for us. Um, so this is Matthew twenty three, one to twenty four, with a few verses missing. It's just a nice mysterious disclaimer there. <laughs> then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for people to see. They love the place of honour at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplace and to be called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all one family. The greatest among you will be your servant. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, and you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting, neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. I have to take issue with Jesus' definition of spices, but um, <laughs> aside from that, <laughs> that's right. I guess mint is a spice. Um, <laughs> uh, so, yeah, frosty. Yeah. I think these are. I think the passages like the seven woes. We had. I think we only had two woes actually. But <laughs> if you were to to roll out some woes to you, mega church leaders, <laughs> what would some of them be? Uh, standing in the foyer of them, just just yes calling out with like a staff in my hand and with messy hair, should I do that? Mm. Um, wearing camel hide or something, I don't know. Oh good, 
Okay, thank you. Thanks for that. Um, <laughs> yeah, look, I think there was something, I sort of read this again last year when we were going through this process of having these conversations uh, sort of for the first, in a much more direct way, because my podcast had been happening for a little while, talking about, you know, theology of, of I don't know, universalism or hell, or just addressing a, a bunch of different things, um, embodiment and sorts of things. But last year we, we decided to sort of directly tackle much more head on what was going on. And, um, and that's an interesting thing to do. Uh, what would my woes be? <laughs> All right. Um, I think, look, the, the crux of it probably is that I just think that, that Christianity and certainly it's my kind of version, the version I had experienced and that was being talked about in, in the news and was coming out in people's stories and so on is not the only version of this in the in the history of Christianity and it's unfortunately a pretty repeated cycle in lots of different streams of the tradition and you know you came from a very different stream but would have found some you know your own version of of these stories but really for me a big part of what it came down to was the way in which uh, the church was understanding power and the role of power within church community and within society um, and really I guess that's been a that's been a big problem since early Christianity and certainly since Constantine and fourth century and and the alignment of Christianity with with the power of empire um, but it's not doesn't just have to be the, the big empire that you align with in order to see Christian faith even subconsciously if you like as a means to acquiring power over other people and um, and so there are all sorts of ways in which this happens that in many respects reflect so much of what was happening here right for Jesus this is a big part of his problem with with the religious system of his or certainly certain forms of the religious system of his time um, and you know I, I sort of laugh when I read that and sort of you know you shouldn't be seeking to be called rabbi and all that kind of stuff because you know I came from a system where everybody had you know there was people were being called uh, and you must call them pastor you know pastor rod you know and um Pastor Shane, that's right, Pastor Tamsin. And, uh, and even like um, church leaders' spouses and children would also call them, you know, so if Susie was here, she'd be talking about you as Pastor Rod in front of everybody else. And, you know, <laughs> if Tilly was here, she'd be like, hello, Pastor Rod, you know. Uh, and, and, you know, but you, you have these sort of weird ways of sort of getting out of it as well, which means you can justify the ongoing sort of elevation of the status and so you use texts that talk about giving honor to, to leaders as a way to make this like a, a religious or spiritual mandate that God really wants you to do. Um, I certainly, no, that's right. It's not that I need you to call me this, it's that um, it's a part of the spiritual principle of honor. Uh, and so for us all to be blessed, this is unfortunately for you what you need to do. Uh, and if you don't call me pastor, you know, I'm not making you do it, but if you, um, but if you don't, just says something about your heart, doesn't it? Uh, so lots of kind of lots of stuff like that that have been engineered to essentially give status and power to some, and to um, take it away from others. Um, this idea of like heavy, cumbersome loads, and we, we were Shane and I at one point were getting hundreds, I think, of emails and messages of, of people who were burnt out. You know, burnt out at 21 because of like the you know, and having to basically take a two-year retreat on an island to, like, on Waiheke Island, which is off the coast of Auckland, like, stories like that, where and they were, yeah, yeah, and hospitalized and so on, because of how much load had been put on them, 
um, not just young people, but you know, of all, of all ages, uh, dealing with the, the weight of pressure and expectation that was being placed upon them by, by leaders within the church. Um, and that's not even the more direct scenarios of abuse of power that were also happening within these spaces. Um, and so my woe to, the ch- woe to you is really in, in many respects about that. You know, it's, it's woe to you who sit in green rooms um, eating caviar while the, um, while the intern stands in the car park in the rain for the seventh day in a row. Whatever, you know, like it's, it's, it's in many respects that, that abuse of power happening within, within those systems. I think I did even make a note or two. Let me see if I've got any more woes down here. Cool. wasn't Ooh. in that context. Wait, while you're looking, yeah, there's, yeah, a, yeah, there's a question. Yes, good. Could I ask how women fit into all of this? Because it's sounding very male-ocentric. That's my perception. Okay. Um, within that system, yeah. Um, there's kind of a. There was certainly yeah, very patriarchal in in lots of ways within that kind of system. I think there's a great. I can't remember if it was Shane that shared it or someone sharing it, but just a, a montage of videos from Pentecostal churches with couples and the man speaking and the woman nodding. Yeah. And smiling. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think that, yeah, that thing of being, being defined, I mean, it's yeah. classic patriarchal stuff, being defined in terms of who you are in relationship with rather than who you are, yeah. And it was a, there's a gaslighty element to that too, which is that it, in the churches I was in, there was actually a, like a theological openness to women leading. It just happened to be that there weren't any women around capable of doing it, you know? And so sometimes those questions would be asked with it. That's the version of events, right? I'm not agreeing with that. Um, but, but uh, you know, those questions were asked in spaces that I, that I was in, you know, why aren't there women, if we believe that women can lead, why aren't there any on the on the team? And it was like, well, just aren't any sort of have come along who are up to it at the moment, you know. So there's a there's a real gaslighty nature to that, right? Which is actually we're open to it. So it's if you've got a problem with that, it's really again your heart attitude, uh, and we're just yeah. So there's some significant problems there. And I must also say, certainly in the stories that I've heard over the last 18 months, which is um, too many to count, um, overwhelmingly there are stories from women within those systems, much more. It's, it's not to say men are not also affected, um, but percentage-wise, certainly my my um, experience would be that women are experiencing this, the brunt of this, much more deeply. Yeah. I think, Mike, you've half answered it, but I got this. I get the sense from what I've heard and read about women in some of the dominant Pentecostal churches that it's a very narrow definition of a Christian woman and that and that women have heavy pressure to comply with that definition which would actually cut across any women being really freed for leadership. Would that be right? Yes, yes, I think so. And, you know, there'll be women who could speak to this much more um, uh, appropriately perhaps than, than I. But, yeah, there's certainly, there's a ver- I've certainly, again, heard that a lot and seen that a lot which is you need to be, you know, beautiful but not sexy. Um, you know, you need to be uh, 
sort of strong but not overbearing. You need, you know, you, you can't be too weak and emotional because then you're not fit for lead, but you can't be too bossy or confident because then you're not showing a, your appropriate. So yeah, it's, a, it's an impossible line to walk, I think, for most women within those spaces. Yeah. Um, what, I, what I will do is post the flipping the script, a particular episode um, that Frosty did a while ago that talks about all of this in detail because there's, I think the texture of it is fascinating. Just, you know, looking at the, the biblical side of it, the Jesus side of it, and then the sort of detail. And then there's, you know, thousands of episodes of unpacking that you can also listen to. Um, but just conscious of the time, so I thought for a short time we might look at hope. Imagine that. Um, so you also talk a lot about um, an alternative vision of, of church, of the kingdom of God. Um, so, yeah, tell us a little bit about having seen these abuses, what vision of what the church could be has come up for you. Um, what do you hope the result of speaking truth to power might be for these churches or other churches? For these churches? <laughs> uh, look, I've got less hope th uh, than I used to have, maybe, um, for, like, for the big institutions and systems that have built themselves on this way of being, because I, I think they've built themselves on this way of being, and I, and I don't know that they um, can bear the cost of what it would take to, to try and be different to that. Uh, and so the hope is that other communities would spring up and offer something different. I think that's kind of, that is the hope really. Uh, and I think, you know, to touch on perhaps the kind of, the, the two sides of, of how some of this works and even within like the reading of scripture and the understanding of the Jesus story and, and the way in which that plays out, I just think um, reclaiming the sense of what's going on in the story more fully uh, offers a much more for me hopeful vision of what Christian faith and Christian community and Christian collectives and, and, and spiritual communities and so on can, can look like. Um, you know, I grew up in a, yeah, in a system where like, not just grew up and I'm sure many are familiar with like, you know, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, um, which in one context gets essentially used to minimize the harm done by those with power because anyone complaining about it is also a sinner too, you know. So don't be judgy about you know, about what you've experienced. Uh, and so, I hope that's what I'm supposed to be talking about. So, um, <laughs> but the flip side of that is like that, the context of that verse, which could for some, especially depending on your experience, be almost quite triggering, is, is within a community where there was a jostle for power going on between these two groups who were both taking, trying to take control of the community off of one another in, the, in, in Rome. And that kind of message was being was an invitation and a challenge to that community to recognize their shared weakness so that they might overcome their wrestle for power. And understood in that context, then, okay, that's, so that's not a message for the kids. And, some, you know, it's, when Rufus was born, I didn't look down at him and go, ah, little sinners come into the world, you know, um, here he is, depraved and everything. Uh, but... It, you know, and it's not a message necessarily to be told to the to the abused person or the harmed person or the burnt out person or the person who's suffering greatly. Um, like the context of those stories matters, and and when the power dynamics, if you like, are, when we pay attention to that, 
then it actually, the invitation into a much more meaningful, liberating kind of spirituality and spiritual community can start to emerge, I think. You know, when, when we, again, when we reduce Jesus' like death down to like this transactional individual salvation motif, then we can excuse our abuses of power because really they have nothing to do with that. But when we see the story as being one of someone who um, suffers under the weight of both political and religious abuse and violence, and yet shows us that in fact God is in the face of the victim rather than in the face of the perpetrator who's doing it in the name of God, then again, that's like something I can go, okay, we can start to build a community around that idea, a community that is able to take seriously the voices of those who are at the margins because that in fact is the very story that grounds Christian faith. And you know, we have a victim of violence and abuse at the very center of the Christian story, right? That is, that is the Christ. And so if that's the case, then what does it look like to build a community and to build communities around that, which means that Christian communities should, I think, or could be places that are the very places who are most willing to name abuse of power and harm when it is occurring because they are communities centered around that very story. Um, and so that to me is like, is that hopeful? That's the best I've got. Yeah. yeah. Very hopeful. <laughs> and you kind of, yeah, I mean, in a way you've, you've answered my last question too, which is the role that a small community like ours can play in calling the church back to Jesus' vision. And I guess that awareness of power and empowering people to, to call out abuses and all of that is so central to that. Um, I wanted just to give people an opportunity to, to make any other comments or ask any other questions that they had before we move to communion. Was this something that came up for you that you wanted to ask more about or a comment that you had in response to that or even um, some hope, some vision for this community that is inspired by the stuff that Frosty has shared Michael, thanks for coming to chat with us today. Uh, I had a question about post-megachurch life and navigating relationships with friends and family that are still in that environment. Um, just wondering how you personally navigate the Christianese and the viewpoint and still maintain those relationships. It's a great question, isn't it? Um, and I guess I would have to say that some of those relationships have been maintained and some of them haven't. Um, not really because of because I've moved to like shut them down or whatever, but um, I also in being in saying authentically what I feel needs to be said that has had some natural consequences in some relationships. Um, but wherever people are willing to, even if they don't understand completely, if there's at least a willingness to recognise that what I'm, even if they don't agree, like that they can see what I'm trying to do, uh, then there, there at least is some kind of ability to, to, um, to connect still there. I think some friendships have had to almost renegotiate to be like, okay, our friendship was built on this shared thing we had, right? And now we don't share that anymore. 
And the question really is, is there a friendship on the other side of not sharing that anymore? And sometimes there is and sometimes there isn't. So, and some friends will be able to actually have that kind of conversation with. Are there other things that our friendship could be centered around and that we could share um, and we could build our friendship on? And if it turns out that really the only, that the main thing we had in common was that we were six nights a week within this <laughs> um, dark auditorium, um, hanging out and having the best time for Jesus, then, then maybe there isn't. But, but if there's other things, then how can we, how can we see those as still being things we can, we can build our relationship on? So whether that's family or, or friends, family, you know, it's complicated, isn't it? It's such a great point that, that what else do you have to talk about is such a great question, isn't it? I think about my own relationship with my brother and, you know, because it's a similar journey. Um, but ultimately, we shared a bedroom for 16 years and we have this incredibly rich history together. And so there's, there's a capacity to, to connect at all of these different levels. And, it, yeah, it's fascinating to go, is this all that we have or is there more? Yeah. Were there any other questions? You can pass it between the two of you. <laughs> Thanks, Rod. Might just an observation or a reflection, reflecting on my own journey. The the institutions I think are so so locked into. Once they become big, there are jobs, there are financial leases, there's a financial sort of locks are a, are a huge thing that. To start to try and unravel them is is it just hits such power power things. And the other the other major lock is I think what we were just talking about relational cultural stuff and reflecting on it. You know, people even if they see it, if I'm not doing this, I'm suddenly out in the cold and I I I don't know you know where I'd connect or how I would do it differently or whatever. I guess my reflections are just the enormous power of those systems to try and unravel it. And my own observation would be, as you, you said, I, I, I see the only hope is in communities like this, and, and, and they're generally smaller, fragile, because they're trying to emerge and do it again. The big benefit is that they're not locked in to the previous power stuff of finance, culture, everybody's identity and stuff is, is woven into those systems. If I could, um, yeah, thank you. And, and added to that, I think that the challenge for like smaller, more fragile communities is if they do become in some way uh, more robust and more appealing for people is to keep uh, on the path of undoing its own power so that it because it's very easy to, to start off going, we're just, uh, you know, we're, we're being this, uh, and then to go, yeah, but we do just need to lock some stuff down and just for the sake of, you know, and then before you know it, you've turned into the thing you didn't want to be. So centering around, again, like the narrative of, of Jesus for me is, is the way of continuing to undo that temptation toward power, which is there in all sorts of systems and places and not just churches, right? Uh, yeah, thanks. Probably related to that, um, you've been uh, through a time where uh, you've been very much part of a church community and felt like you were doing God's work in that. And then along the way, you become disillusioned, the wheels fall off, everything um, goes belly up. 
Um, I'm wondering how you've gone through handling the grief of all that and the grief of the dream uh, versus the reality. Yeah. Um, I was young with potential, you know. <laughs> I could have been somebody. <laughs> I think it's, it's, there's, a, there's a couple of layers of grief. One is the layer of realising actually the thing I helped to build and participated in I now see the ways in which my own participate, you know, I was complicit in my own ways of, of participating in building that kind of system um, at times. And so that's like one level of grief to recognize, yeah, this kind of, this amazing path you were on, that I was on to, to fulfill God's call upon my life um, was in fact hurting people, you know, that, and that's one of the reasons people don't want to acknowledge that is because it's, it's a very hard thing to acknowledge. And it's painful and it requires you to retell the story of your own life. And a lot of people are understandably aren't very keen to do that. Uh, and the longer you're in it, I think the harder that gets. And so I have a lot of res so much respect for some of the um, people in their 50s, 60s, 70s who have, who have come to these reflections also because in many respects they've, it costs them more in grief to acknowledge that. Um, in terms of how I've handled that, I started a podcast so I could just <laughs> have some have a have someone to talk to, uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, um, and therapy I suppose, but um, and and finding a community where where I, where maybe there were people who, because it's a weird thing when you've had difficult experiences in church because people outside of the church don't necessarily get it. Um, they're like, oh, why didn't you just stop doing stop going there? Um, and, and so finding other people who are familiar with parts of the story at least or has been a, a therapeutic thing for me, yeah. Was there one, maybe I think we've got time for one more question, Josh. Um, my question's around that Venn diagram overlay of the way that uh, our church does it and the way that God uh, wants it to be done a hundred percent overlap and then realizing that that might not be true and I guess the question is for you and I guess for us is like how do we know that we're not doing that exact same overlap in this new way of being um, yeah just curious how you've navigated that yeah that's the uh, that's the temptation too isn't it though that last place I was in boy they were getting a lot wrong now I figured it all out uh, <laughs> Good, and on we go. You know, with yeah. Now I'm 100% convinced again. And I suppose the for for me the um, the invitation is to keep listening to the people. You know, there will always be different theological visions and beliefs and doctrines, and people will believe all sorts of different things. Um, and you kind of got to be okay with the fact that there are all sorts of things that we believe or don't believe that are right and wrong, and and somewhere in between. But um, I guess my core question comes back to, are people being harmed in these communities, right? And the only way to really know that is to give voice to the people in your community and, and to not have sole voices as the, the big authority who tell everybody like it is. Because it's much easier to have the 100% overlap when it's just one person's vision of the thing, of, of faith, that is kind of shaping the conversation. But if we allow multiple voices, it doesn't guarantee, right? Um, but it hopefully does the best it can 
giving multiple perspectives and experiences room to be expressed so that if someone gets up and says, this is the way I think it is, and someone else is like, it doesn't really work in my life, actually, um, then that's a really healthy thing, I think, for, for a community. Um, and you've got much greater chance of then someone being able to say, our way of doing this is actually harming vulnerable people in our community. We need to talk about this. Uh, and then if that's the case, then we can we can kind of work it out. So yeah, I guess that's um, some of my reflections at least. And and a, and a, a lack of clinging to certainty. Sorry, Rod, did you have the microphone? Oh. Oh, good. Oh yeah, I love this one. Um, being 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 okay with the lack of certainty. So it's like actually, I don't need to. I don't think I'm a hundred and a hundred percent overlap, and I and I am okay with that. Versus only feeling okay if we're a hundred percent overlap, like I'm doing the right thing. Yeah. Anyway. And right. before we watch yes. the video. Yes. <laughs> Um, yeah, I think this conversation has just really convicted me about the need for us to hold our, our own structures lightly and to recognise that a number of years ago we said, okay, for now, we would like this, mo this structure. We'd like this model, we'd like this collaborative pastoral leadership structure. Um, and the importance of coming back to that, reviewing that, does that still serve us? And recognising that as soon as you pay people, it's like what Dean is saying, as soon as you have these structures in place, people's income is dependent on the community, it, they're threats to the ability of the community to, to critique and to pivot as required. And so it's just important. Yes, there's a coup. Um, <laughs> pull off the mask. <laughs> yes, I'm Tish. Um, yeah, so I think yeah, these are just really important conversations to keep having. Yeah. <laughs>